Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 111 with our guest, Claudette Rowley. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey there, everybody. Thank you for joining us. You're tuned right into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. You know that in today's day and age, change is inevitable. It's consistent and it happens whether you are ready for it or not. And imagine your business proactively responding to change in ways that decrease stress, inspire learning, and promote organizational health. And imagine employees who are engaged and motivated to deliver innovative results on a consistent basis. Well, our guest today knows exactly what it takes to make your company or small business succeed, and it all begins with your culture. Claudette Rowley is the CEO of Cultural Brilliance. They help companies discover how their culture holds them back and how it moves them forward. They identify cultural bottlenecks, blocks, and breakdowns and help you design the culture you need to grow, scale, or innovate. Help me welcome my guest today. It's Claudette Rowley. How are you, Claudette? I'm doing well, Josh. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So let's get right into this topic of culture. I've heard it. I know of it. I might not understand it completely. That's why I'm excited for this. Um, So many great questions. Let's start with the big 10,000 foot view. When we are talking about culture, Mm -hmm. what what does that really mean to the Mm -hmm. entrepreneur? What is that? Yeah, so to the entrepreneur, I think culture is especially important, right? Um, Because the entrepreneur is trying to create something and get it out into the world, right? A product or a service. So if you are an entrepreneur and you have even a couple of employees, or maybe you're the only person even in, you know, starting out in your organization, the culture is forming no matter what. That's the thing about culture. That's the key is you're going to have a culture that forms whether you're paying attention to it or not. So I always say, why not form a culture that you love, that supports where you're trying to go? And culture, distilling it down, culture is really about a set of uh, beliefs that an organization, the people in the organization hold that drive our behavior. And that's one of the things that makes it, well, for me, really, really interesting, but also kind of tricky for a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, because it's, an, it's this thing we can't really touch, right? We can't really, we can feel it. We can feel, we've all gone into an organization where we're like, oh, it feels really good to be here. I don't know why, 
but there's something about this place, right? It's fun, it's energetic, positive, and then you go into another business or or startup and you think, this is, you could cut the tension with a knife, like this is really awful, right? And and you, you're feeling something of the culture, but you can't, you know, put your finger on it. So you, what culture shows up in the behavior of the people in the organization. That's where we can really start to see it. I love that you say culture exists, whether you're aware of it or not, whether you're actively yeah. working on it or not. Interesting question. Um, if there is a solo entrepreneur, they mm -hmm. are the one and only in their office environment, maybe they outsource to others. Is there a culture or it's, it's not really applicable to one? I think there is. I think that people, even individuals, right? who don't even have, we actually have our own, it's like our personality, our own culture, our own way of being, right? People would describe us a certain way. It may or may not be accurate, but even I, so I was talking with a colleague and she has her own business in marketing. Um, she has worked a, probably for at least 15 years, right? Worked alone as a solopreneur. And she read the book, Cultural Brilliance, my book. And she said, this was so helpful because she said she started to understand more about the culture she's created as a business of one interacting with clients and it also helped she said understand how so she said some of the um where what was her responsibility and then really what was the client's responsibility based on the client's organizational culture which i thought was a really fascinating insight so things that she maybe felt like the client was putting on her she realized hey that's really their responsibility that's part of their culture that's not my that's not, not part of my purview as a marketer hmm. so i think that was a really interesting insight and I know you also talk about the fact that businesses, companies have a mindset and energy of their own. And I always yeah. know that applied to us as people. Yeah. How, do we, how do we talk about the mindset or energy mm -hmm. of a business? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. I, that's one of my favorite questions, right? <laughs> it's because we don't think about businesses having energy mindset a lot. But we, you know, we're all made of energy. So, of course, businesses have energy. So the mindset really, it's like, you know, it's what are the norms, right? Another way of saying, you know, what are the norms in an organization? And these are the things that people know about. They're unspoken, right? The unspoken rules, the engage, rules of engagement, or maybe are known and spoken about, but they're part of the mindset. Like, you know, things like how, how hard do people work here, right? Mm. What are you allowed to talk about? What are you not allowed to talk about? Um, you know, how innovative are you? How important is it to follow process and be efficient? Things like that. What do we say to the leaders and we don't say to the leaders? All that's part of the mindset of the organization. And the energy is part of that feeling piece I mentioned. Like you can, we all can feel energy if we tune in, right? We can go into a room and if you really, especially you're not talking and you really listen and just think, what is it like to be in this room? You would pick up on the energy, right? Does it make you feel tired? Does it make you feel energized, right? Sort of heightened and enlivened. Does it make you feel something else? And that's part of the energy of the organization. So when you, um, you know, one thing all of us know who have ever worked in teams and experience, it can take one person in a really bad mood to tank that conversation, the team conversation, right? Same way, one person comes in who's really positive and that's infectious. So mindsets are contagious and that's part of that energy, right? We see how we can influence and impact each other even a, you know, a meeting of seven people. So you can, it's, it's a fun thing. I often have people start trying to tune in and say, so when you go into your next meeting, see if you can notice the energy, how would you describe it? And it's, it's interesting because as I'm thinking about this, I, <laughs> 
first gravitated towards the idea that, well, certainly culture might, yes, it might start from the top down, but it can certainly, like you said, even if there's great culture, it can be negatively influenced from the bottom up. If there is somebody who just always comes in negative and, and you know, the, the higher management still has a, a great intention, it can still be muddled. So mm-hmm. when, when you're brought into it, where do you most often see the chance to adjust and, and begin to dig in? I, I actually work at all, all levels of an organization because I think all levels matter. So you're in the sense that it, or if the leaders aren't engaged in this process, it's not going to work. So absolutely, right? Leaders have to be engaged, bought in, under, at least have a beginning understanding of what we're going to do um, and be really willing to message that to the organization and support it and be in communication. But then after that, once we have that part in, you know, um, initiated, then we're really looking at how how do we look work with every level of the organization? Because there's something that's probably working really well and not working well, right? So you could have the leader saying, you know, from the heart, all the right things, like with integrity, all the right things, but cultures don't change overnight. So then you're still, you know, if you have a bunch of people on the front line who are, you know, middle management, who are so disengaged and frustrated that they can't even hear what the positive message is or they don't believe it, I have to work with them directly to hear what's going on with them. Because they probably have a really important message. Why are you frustrated? Why are you disengaged? What's your experience been like? And that's part of our cultural assessing of, of how the culture operates now and how, how it needs to change. So every, everyone has something important to say. It seems like the idea of culture, first of all, is this a, a relatively new phenomenon or has, have people been trying to get this right for eons? Mm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I think at some level people have been trying to get it right for eons, but they were trying to get something a little bit different right than we're trying to, we're trying to do now. So, so to explain that. So it used to be that organizations would try to have cultures that were as profitable as possible. Mm. You know, that, that's part, that's important. Profit matters, money matters. I'm all for that. You know, you need to have a successful business. And now what we see is with all, you know, the overt conversations about culture, all the books being written about it, right? The fact, you know, people being interviewed about it. Um, what we see, or what we're seeing now is that people are creating cultures that are profitable but also that really value people more, respect people more, engage people more, bring out their best gifts and talents. So culture, I think of culture as a massive form of potential. And most organizations don't surface that potential. They don't even think about it, which, you know, I feel when the potential of the people in the organization and the systems in the organization, by, that can be operations, like any kind of system. When those, the potential of those are actually brought forth, you're going to have an even more successful business. So I think it's very much tied to success. But I think the cultural question conversation has shifted into something bigger than it used to be. The the stereotype, like you're talking about, uh, in the in the days of old, where it was right. just profit at anybody's expense. You right. just sit back. You 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 do what we say because right. we know how to do it. Follow our lead. Uh, mm-hmm. Stay in line, right? right. And, and and help us make the most profit possible. When you when you go into a company like that, or even less than that, you know, more, um, more cultural uh, in today's standards, is there a willingness or is there still a, a very tense, like, nah, this isn't for us? Are people open to this? Yeah, I mean, some people are open to it, right? If they're not open to it, they probably haven't even brought me in for a meeting. 
you know, so we're probably they're they're not even right because we'll have maybe a phone conversation and realize that what I do is not what they're looking for. Um, so there has to be an openness to say, yeah, we want to we want to shift and change this our culture because for you know whatever their reasons are, right? And it's usually because there is something hitting the bottom line, or maybe it hasn't hit the bottom line yet. And I've worked gone into companies like this; they're still financially really successful, but the stress level has escalated really escalated because operations aren't working well, you know, deliveries to customers are being missed, you know, things like those early, earlier symptoms of a lot of problems. Um, people are leaving. Mm. You know, you maybe you have a culture of really low trust. Maybe there's a bully. Those kinds of things are happening. And that's when they're thinking, okay, this cannot go on, right? This is not working. We know this is going to hit our bottom line eventually, and we need to do something about it. And those are usually the folks that are, are, are much more open because they realize they have a problem to solve. What generally needs to change? Is it a person? Is it a process? Is it something different? What needs to change? Yeah. It's, it's usually the culture itself, right? So it, well, the symptom could be a person who's a bully or something, right? The symptom could be a leader that's not very competent. The, the co organization's tolerated, right, without mm. dealing with performance. It could be an operational system or process. So it's going to show up in those areas, right? That's how we know something's not working. But it's often the culture itself, and I don't mean the whole culture, because almost all cultures have parts that are great you want to keep, right? But they're going to be aspects of it that have formed over time, like we, the mindset we talked about earlier, you know, mindsets that don't really work or behaviors that aren't really supporting what everybody wants. Um, and so I'm looking at the big picture cultural system to see how it operates. What are the mindsets? What are the behaviors, right? What are the systems? And then from there, we start to understand, okay, now that you've called, you have, we know you have culture A, we've described it, everybody's pretty much in agreement, this is what it is now, right? We know what works, we know what doesn't. What's the culture you need to support your continued growth and success as a company? And that's what we help create. For those listening, whether it's an entrepreneur or a small business owner or a fortune something owner, it, it, I, I almost see it connected like when you're working on yourself and getting your your own mindset right and, and thinking and, and knowing your own thoughts. It's almost the shift where you have to become aware of your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. Is it sort of the same? What can somebody listening do to, to basically, because as you said, culture exists, whether we realize it or not. What's yeah, the yeah. first step of awareness that they can do right now to tune in to say, all right, let me identify my mm -hmm. culture. Where do we begin? How does, how does somebody begin that self-evaluation for themselves? Mm -hmm. and their and self-awareness is a huge piece of it. So thanks for bringing that up. So I, I often will give people a task of going to be a cultural detective. Right? Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. So you're, so we all, we have assumptions and beliefs about our own culture, right? And some of them are right and some of them aren't. So this is an act of trying to actually step back and pretend you've never seen this culture before, right? You've never listened to a meeting before. So even if you work somewhere for 10 years or longer, right? Saying, I'm going to pretend I don't know anything. And I'm just, I'm going to listen. I'm going to be as unbiased and neutral as possible. I'm going to forget that I don't like so-and-so, right? <laughs> I'm going to forget, you know, forget that I really like this other person. I'm just going to wipe the slate clean. And notice, how do people behave? What do they say? What do they not say? When does everyone get stressed and tense? When is there a lot of, you know, energy or flow or happiness, whatever happens in your company or organization? So just be an observer and a listener and a noticer and see what you learn about your own culture that probably confirms some of the things you already believed. And then maybe you notice some things that you've never, you've never noticed before. So that's a great starting point is that that individual assessment piece. What? 
what company or organization either that you've worked with or that we all know is really killing it, is really a model example getting it right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one, and I, Google is one of them, and I write about Google in the book. Um, they, they have done a great job, you know, and I, there's no company that's perfect. I always give that caveat, right? So, you know, people could be listening to work for Google and say, oh, yeah, I didn't have a great experience or something. But one of the things they've done really, really well is create this idea, uh, not this idea, but this reality of something called psychological safety, which is a form of trust. And they didn't, that term has been around for a while, but it hasn't been as, you know, it's becoming a little more mainstream now. And it simply means that a team or an organization is safe for interpersonal risk taking, which means that I can make a mistake and share it with my team. And I'm not going to be worried. Everyone's going to talk about me behind my back or my boss is going to, you know, call me in and give me a hard time. Right. So it's like, we can all learn from these mistakes. We can bring up that we feel vulnerable. We can bring up that we took a risk and can have that discussion. And what research has found is those teams are much more successful. Let me talk about that again. It's called yeah. psychological what? Psychological safety. And that means that the company has set up the culture and the idea that, yeah. hey, we're going to empower you. We trust yeah. you. We, we want you to just push this and, and do as much as you can with this safety net, knowing you're not going to get ridiculed. You're not going to get reprimanded. You're not going to mm -hmm. get called in. You're not going to get in trouble for doing your best and trying. There's a safety here that we support. Yeah. And I, another key to that too, is that people are still held accountable for performance, right? Love so, that, yeah. still, so you're not going to be, you know, in trouble, quote unquote, but there might be a conversation about what did you learn, right? What did you learn that you're going to use next time, right? How did, how did this mistake help you improve your performance going forward? Which is a, a key piece that most organizations I think miss is sitting down for that conversation, which is, is, it is an empowering, you might not love the actual conversation, but the message is empowering, right? How are you going to learn from it so you can use this, all this information, and be even better at what you do? So that's, that's a key part of it. So Google, Google has done that, and there's been research on their work with it. And I think that's a, huge, that's a huge win for any organization that creates a psychologically safe environment, because innovation, for example, is rooted in trust, right? Oh, my gosh. The things that we want in our companies are rooted in trust, that kind of trust. And in their situation, apparently also in foosball tables. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the fun part of the culture, right? But foosball tables and things like that in and of themselves do not create a great culture. <laughs> but do you find that some think, yeah. you know what, guys, we're bringing in the foosball table and that's, and, and they think that that's the trick, right? Like, let's they just have it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it only, it's only, it, it's just, if it's part of your culture to have fun like that, that's a great thing. But you can have a fun culture like that where people are stabbing each other in the back. Oh, so it, wow. it doesn't build trust. Wow. You know, so, it, it's only part of the equation. Yeah. So let's talk about trust because it seems like in order for the business owner, let's say the listening audience from their point of view, in order to give that psychological safety where you inspire your team to just take these risks, knowing that that's going to be for the good, the, the business owner or team leader has to, has to have trust, right? Yeah. They have to... And that's a whole thing in and of itself, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So they have to have trust, right? And hope, one of the ways, and I find this is, is sometimes really overlooked, one of the best ways to build trust with the people who work for you is to be really clear. Clarity in your expectations, clarity in your organizational direction and purpose so that everybody knows what's expected so they can actually do that. So a lot of times I, the leaders who have a hard time trusting, I notice are often the ones that aren't clear. They haven't clarified direction. 
right? They haven't, they haven't stated their expectations in a way that people, or they think they have. And then I'm, I, maybe I'm in, you know, I'm working with the organization. And I'm like, uh, no one knew what you were talking about. Not really. You know, I was very clear. I appreciate, you know, that you, you think you were clear. And as a listener and someone who talked to folks after I'm telling you, it wasn't clear. So um, that is a, that's a big piece of it. And, and the other thing I think really builds trust, not only for the business owner or leader, but for the rest of the organization, is when a leader can tune into something called the emotional part of the culture. Uh, and that is an, a, a newer area of research, um, I'm, not research I'm doing, but I've you know, certainly read about Harvard Business Review, folks, you know, publications like that are writing about it now. And it's simply tuning in. It's what you asked about the beginning closer to the beginning of the show, our conversation about mindset and energy, right, that I write about in the book, that's part of it. It's like, do you, are you tuning into what's happening on an emotional level for folks in the company? And it doesn't mean you're doing therapy with them. I don't mean that. But if you, let's say you are a leader and you make a major announcement, right, we're acquiring a new, another company, something big like that. And you notice in the room, there's no enthusiasm. There's no positivity. Maybe people are on their phones, you know, whatever, kind of disconnected. And you just ignore that response mm. and don't check it out. You're doing it at your peril. So if you're tuning into the emotional, intel, emotional culture, you're noticing that that happened. And then you're going to ask questions to find out why, what's going on. Why do people respond like that? Mm. Because that's going to help you have, you know, a, a better company. And certainly if you do move forward with acquiring, right, a better acquisition. So a bunch of tuned out people, disengaged people, that's something to go find out what, you know, ask why what's happening. Help me connect the dots. I want to see how you got from uh, your upbringing to this, this point in time. Take us back to the very beginning. What was life like growing up for you? Oh, um, so I was someone who was always a very natural observer, right? So I can go back and connect the dots from, you know, then to now. I was always observing people was very interested in how um, people related to each other, you know, without knowing anything about psychology, that's what I was actually, in, you know, interested in. So I, I was doing a lot of that. And, um, and then I, you know, like, a lot of people, when, you know, when they go to college, you kind of find yourself and you start understanding more about what you're really interested in and passionate about. And I had that experience. And then I had um, two jobs in my mid to late 20s that really set the stage for all of this. And one was I was actually working for a state organization which uh, as a social worker, which actually had an amazing culture, which is not something you get to say every day, but this particular department had a great culture. I didn't know anything about culture. I didn't even know it was a great culture. All I knew was that I was having a great experience with a manager who really trusted me, who gave me a lot of creative work, who gave me projects and said, you know, here are your parameters. And as long as you stay in the parameters, you can create whatever you want, which was awesome for me because I loved that. And he trusted me. And so I learned a lot from that experience. Then I moved for a to a different state. So I got a new job, of course. And I worked for a large nonprofit. And it was really dysfunctional. It was super toxic. The culture was really toxic. I still did good work there. I still did interesting work. I was still given a, a lot of autonomy. I wasn't micromanaged. But um, I spent a lot of time dealing with the toxicity of the culture. And what I noticed, looking back, is how my confidence started to suffer because of how negative it was. And that really looked, set the stage. I got really interested in leadership, interestingly. I started reading all these books on leadership, and I had no idea what I was doing with that information um, because I wasn't a leader at the time. But I got really interested in leadership, uh, which then led me to move into becoming a coach and a consultant and my interest in culture. So one thing did lead to the next. 
something that just sparked from your time at that nonprofit when you are um, not part of the leadership team, is it possible to have an effect on the culture? How could you really make a difference if you're not leadership or management position? Yeah, it's a, it's a question I often get. And you're um, part of it. It depends what's happening in the culture, right? It depends uh, what kind of manager you have, right? And what's happening on your team. But I think there's a, there's, there's almost always an opportunity to manage up. There's almost always an opportunity to advocate. And I think that, not that you can change the whole fabric of the culture, but you might be able to move something forward, move the needle. And what I find is often people feel, um, especially people maybe newer in their, or earlier in their career, excuse me, are feel like they can't even advocate, that they can't even build a case, you know, with data, with ideas, with whatever you need to support what you want to have happen and go present it. Um, and that's a lost opportunity because I think we can almost always do something like that and just and see what happens, you know, because you might be able to get that project moved forward. You might be able to get a resource for your team. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to give in to the part of the, the fact that the culture is important. Try to make a difference. What is your take on open spaces? Oh, yeah, I write a little bit about that in the book. Um, open space is interesting because when it works well, I think it's really great. What my um, hesitancy with open space is some organizations, and I've, I've been and worked in some of them, two come to mind literally that I consulted in, didn't really assess the work needs of the people in the company, the impact the open space would have on the environment. So in both cases, they wanted to increase collaboration. Good goal. In both cases, when you walked in, their environments were completely silent. You could have heard a pin drop because no one wanted to disturb anybody else. So when they needed, if you needed to have a phone call or a meeting, you still were scheduling a conference room. So I'm like, how is that increasing collaboration? Because you're not really, you go over to your neighbor, people are saying, I should, we should go to the conference room because we're disturbing other people. So that was, so it, that's really interesting. So if you like to work in a silent environment, that was great. But let's say you're more of an extroverted person, someone who likes a lot of interaction, that would drive you crazy because you'd want to chat with your neighbor, right? You'd want to be not chat just to chat, but chat because you're going over an idea, right? And brainstorming or something. Um, so I think open space works if it matches the industry and the needs of the people. But I'm more of a fan of give people some options. You know, who needs an enclosed space, right? Who wants to be in open space? That would be ideal, like match it to the person's work style. Hmm. Wow. Um, I want to focus on um, your journey for a moment more. My my brand here, The Hidden Entrepreneur, was founded on the premise that I spent a lifetime hiding behind fear, using that as an excuse for everything I chose not to do in my life and uh, tried making that work for so long. Uh, Can you share a story where you found yourself uh, hiding behind fear but you had to work through it. Yeah, I had, um, I had a real fear, and I don't have it anymore because I worked through it. Tremendous fear of public speaking and presenting all through my you know, teenage years and early 20s. And then I had um, an experience, I guess it was my early 20s, where it, some, it hit me. I thought, you know what? I can't let this hold me back anymore. You know, because I had a role where I had to facilitate a conversation and things like that where I would do it, but I would be petrified the entire time like it was this really intense fear um and i hate it you know it feels terrible like you were saying to be feel afraid like that you know on a regular basis about something so i made this internal decision that i was going to get over this fear of public speaking and presenting and also get good at it and so it, it literally took a decade it took a decade to do it 
I joined Toastmasters. I got, I got coach, you know, worked with a speaking coach and did stuff like that. And finally, uh, yeah. So about the age of 20 to 30. So finally around 30 or my early thirties, I, I presented a breakout session at a conference. I was a coach already and I did it. And I thought, you know what? I'm really happy with what I just did. Like mm. I've, I've made it, you know? And then ever since then, it's been, I'm really comfortable in front of a room. I like public speaking. I don't have any issues with it at all. Right. Uh, and just very comfortable. So that was, that's the, the, the first one that came to mind. Um, yeah. Breaking through that. Yeah. Now, whether it was through your, your role in cultural brilliance, which I know you're the CEO of, or another part of your life, was there a time that stands out that you knew you weren't playing as big as you were capable of? Yeah, actually, and that led to Cultural Brilliance, um, the book and the, the body of work. So I was, um, a few years ago, really ended up being pretty burned out. I've been coaching consulting, having my, I've had my business for 19 years. So I've had it for a number of years. I've reinvented it a few times because I get bored, like a lot of entrepreneurs, right? Got to keep it creative. And, um, and then I hit this wall where I could not figure out what I wanted to do. I couldn't think of anything else. Should I like leave this and just go get a, you know, a, an you know, job as an employee? Should I, you know, change in that way? Should I try that out? And I ended up um, hiring a coach who I ran into at a conference and really connected with who helped me figure out the cultural brilliance end of things. So he didn't help me figure out the, the actual work, but he helped me go through a process of realizing. Because I, I felt that was part of my frustration is that it was this feeling like I have more to give. I have more to contribute. I know I have more potential, but I can't figure out for the life of me how, what that is or what it's going to look like. You know, what's that channel to get it out? And uh, he was really great in helping me, helping me do that. So I can completely relate to that question. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there myself too, where you just find yourself working with a coach, working with yeah. a mentor and they help you get out your thoughts and ideas and, and, and put it into perspective and say, Oh, no, I see this is what you have. And it's like, Oh yeah, that is exactly what I have. That's, that, that's great. And very, very beneficial. Yeah. Um, I like that you said you spent all this time um, or, or uh, along the way uh, reinventing yourself because, mm -hmm. because I, I, a, I think that so many entrepreneurs relate to that and sort yeah. of need that because we get to a point where we're like, okay, this is sort of run its course. Yeah. But then on the, on the flip side, some of us say, well, I don't know. I, I don't want to look flaky or flighty. If I now change direction again, how mm -hmm. is it going to look? But I think there's something so, so necessary about following that desire, right? Can you talk oh, about that, that reinvention? Sure. I believe, I'm not a really strong believer in following desire, like you, as you just phrased it, because I think it's a, it's a signal from ourselves, from maybe from the external world, that something needs to change. And if you don't, you're just going to get stressed, depressed, right? Something like that. It's just not going to be good. You'll be burned out. Um, but I think the reinventing... It was just, yeah, I was, I'm someone who always likes to be learning new things. So I would hit this wall of, I was really, in, in a way, enough mastery that there wasn't a challenge anymore and to whatever I was doing, right? So it doesn't, you know, I was still good at it and I was getting work in it and all of that, but I, I personally wasn't stimulated, right, or, or, or energized by it because I wasn't really learning anything. There wasn't an edge. So um, in both cases, there was kind of a natural, although I had to hire a coach you know, for this last next step, right? But earlier, there were some just natural steps where, um, you know, I moved from doing a lot of coaching to more consulting. So a lot of my changes were less um, dramatic to the outside world, more dramatic to me, maybe, but externally, you know, oh, yeah, I used to do a lot of coaching, I decided to do more consulting, people say, oh, okay, you know, it wasn't 
to the external world, no one was going to be thinking I was taking a turn that didn't make sense because it was a fairly natural evolution in, in my field. Um, uh, the, I think the challenge was more when you, every time, at least for me, you reinvent yourself, well, it's really in, exciting and invigorating. You're in a way starting the business over. Not completely, right? Not completely. So relationships and networks and clients and all that. But I did have to move in a different direction and market that. Um, and that was a, definitely a challenge, right? Um, to move, to get it, you know, to stop doing the work I had been doing that I didn't like anymore, to completely move into the work I really wanted to do. How do you then? Um, I, how do you then market that? Meaning, uh, make money, gain clients, right. sell yeah. products and services. Is it just in part, like you said, because you, it, while it might be different or completely different, you're still bringing your network, your skills, right. your past experience. But now you have to sort of repackage it and present mm -hmm. it. How did you? Uh, how'd you find that? So I, I. Um at a high level, and both times I did it pretty, when I, I've done it maybe two or three times, but two of the times I would continue to do the work that I had been doing, right? So like, you know, coaching practice going. And then I was in, and then I, I, you know, conceptually came up with what I wanted to consult on and, you know, some packaging and branding around that. And then I went out and networked. So I was kind of, a couple of, a couple of times I was like doing two jobs almost, you mm -hmm. know, it was a lot of time, but it was worth it because it was, would allow me to continue to be successful financially, but then move into the new direction. Um, and then sometimes there are opportunities with coaching, you know, where I was able to say, oh, hey, I do this consulting piece too, you know, to a client. So it was a pretty natural evolution. But a lot of it was just going, you know, I, I really like to network and I like to sit down and talk with people. I like to network one-on-one. -on -one. And so I'd sit down and talk, you know, this is what I'm up to now. And they'd be interested in it. And maybe they'd have an idea. Maybe they'd have a new connection, right? So it was a very organic process. Yeah, and being able to say to somebody, hey, this is what I'm up to now. Some people have, uh, you know, a little bit of a tough time talking about what they do. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. I feel like you have to. It doesn't come that naturally to me. I, I think it does more now just from practice, right? But when I was earlier, it was hard for me to talk about it also. Um, and so a couple of times I've actually hired someone to help brand, brand the business or brand what I was doing to help me get the language because I was so close to it, I would talk about it and just be like, this is or convoluted or right, you know, because I just couldn't see it clearly. And they were able to give me that language that I needed. And that's been really helpful. That is so powerful. I just want to reiterate that, that in our own businesses, so often we are so close to it that we don't even understand. We think we're saying it perfectly clear, but yeah. it's not. It's not landing. It's not resonating. The people right. that most need to hear it aren't hearing it. So as you said, you were able to, to work with somebody that can hear it back and, 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 and get it a little more, a little more uh, perfect for you. Yeah, just really, it's something like you said that would resonate and engage a potential customer or client, right? That they would be interested in. Um, and that was a huge piece to it because I, that was really, I had one person I worked with, she said, you know, you keep selling the ship. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, if you're, if you're a travel agent, you don't sell the ship or the airplane, you sell the destination and you keep selling the trip. And it was a massive breakthrough because I didn't get that I was doing that. Wow, you don't sell yeah. the ship or the airplane, you sell the destination and it's so mm -hmm. applicable. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. And when you, especially when you consult and that's your business, mm -hmm. right? It's all about the how, but not to the client only wants the how, of course, after they're sold on the destination. 
Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and uh, another way to put it is the result. What is the result? That's all anybody cares about. Right. Right. Not the how. They care about the how when you're actually going to do it, but they don't care about it initially. Yeah, they care about the result. Looking back on a uh, younger version of yourself, what conversation would you have with her? Oh, uh, yeah, it would be about trust, trusting myself, right? Trusting myself more sooner than I did, you know, in my adult life, like really, really trust yourself, trust your instincts, trust your insights, trust what you see in here. Um, and that, that would have been great to have had earlier. Yeah. In my adulthood. Why there was the opposite in your, in your experience. Oh yeah. Where I would doubt myself and not trust myself and things like that, you know, especially in my twenties. Um, and early 30s. So I think that was, and that, you know, how that is, I think we've all had that experience to an extent, right? Where we doubt ourselves. And it's just, it's anxiety provoking, right? It holds us back mm. from, from taking risks, from making certain decisions. And so I, uh, I would have loved to have moved to a place where I really trusted myself sooner, for sure. Yeah, we could relate. I get that too. Yeah, yeah. Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? I, I believe almost everything happens for a reason. Yes. Yeah. Almost everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think once in a while, um, something happens just cause it does, you know, so I get that little, there's, you know, maybe 2% or something. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I think most things, most things happen for a reason. And it's sometimes in my experience, you don't know, it may, you might not know that reason for, you know, five years, right. In some cases, and in some cases, the reason you, you get it right away. Hmm. Are you spiritual or religious in any ways? I'm spiritual. I'm not, not religious now, but I am spiritual. How does that play out in your, in your day to day? Um, I think it's, it's more of a, for me, a state of being or a state of mind. I don't, I don't have any particular practices around it. Um, I don't meditate, which is a question I sometimes get. <laughs> I'm sure that I should, but I don't. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, I look for opportunities to really stay connected with myself, which is huge for me. Part of that self-trust and, and inner knowing and intuition is being connected to myself and how I feel. So that's important. I do believe, you know, there is a universe around us. I do believe a lot of things happen for a reason and there's, there is a connectedness. And I think have, being rooted in, the, in that belief system for me is, is spiritual and, um, and drives a lot of what I do, you know, professionally and personally. What do you believe happens when it's all over? Our time here on earth comes to an end. Yeah, you know, I'd like to believe that there is, um, and I guess you don't know until I you know, pass away, but right, that, that we are, you know, we are souls here in a human body. Um, and then, you know, we go back to some other place uh, after we die. So I, I, uh, that's usually the, you know, belief system I ascribe to. Um, so I think that that's, you know, but I'll find out at some point, right? <laughs> yeah. I think that that's the, uh, I think that that's what we've signed up for. Yeah. We will, we will find out one way or another. Right. I will leave you with this final question. Claudette Rowley, mm -hmm. how would you like to be remembered? Mm. I'd like to be remembered. Um, two things came to mind. One is someone who's someone who's trustworthy, right? Someone who has a lot of integrity um, and that you, you know, people feel uh, safe and comfortable with. Um, and then the other thing is as a, as a pioneer, you know, in the field of culture, in the field of, of organizational development, someone who pushed the, pushed the edges and boundaries of what was possible and really contributed to the world in that way. 
Wow. This has been extraordinary. Opened me up to the whole, I'm going to give this a lot of thought now. I, I, like I started this, I always knew of the word culture, but never really knew how to, how to apply it, how to adjust it for myself. So this has been fascinating discussion. Thank you for coming on and opening up as you did, Claudette. Really cool to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks so much. It was, it was great conversation. I appreciate that. And I appreciate everybody tuning in, whether it's here to the live broadcast or if you're catching this in its native podcast form on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast shows, I thank you for tuning in. If you feel so inclined, leave a review. I love hearing and reading your thoughts on the show. We're going to have another episode again for you not too far behind. Until we do, thanks again for tuning in and go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.